Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall, and today we're going to talk about obesity. Obesity is defined as an abnormal or excessive fat accumulation that presents health risk to us. It affects a lot of us, and we aren't really taught how we can tackle it with our medical teams, and we're typically left to figure it out on our own, but we know it has something to do with exercising more and eating less. Well, the good news is the new Canadian Adult Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines have just been released for the first time since 2007. Now a lot's changed with respect to obesity research and care since then, so this new guidance is for medical professionals and policymakers and provides them with insights on how to navigate obesity using evidence-based, patient-centered frameworks. It's a landmark achievement for Canada and it's getting global attention. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Farrell Cal. He's an obesity researcher and he'll explain a bit more about the condition. And then we're going to speak with Dr. Lori Twells, who is part of the development team for the Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines. She'll walk us through what we need to know and how we can navigate obesity with our medical team. This is a really important topic, so I hope you learn lots today. Hey, Farrell, welcome back to the show. Oh, man, it's great to be here. Thanks. Okay, so we're talking about obesity today, and this is where you spend a lot of your time doing research. Can you define for the listeners what obesity is? Yeah, obesity is, is really a phenotype. It's the idea of looking at um, the amount of body fat accumulation and the adverse amount of it. So it's, it's difficult to pin down when you say that somebody's obese because we have a, we're kind of desensitized to mm -hmm. what obesity is. We see people who think, oh, that person's obese. You're like, no, no, no you yourself may actually have a high amount of body fat for amount of lean tissue. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about the amount of body fat you have in comparison to healthy lean tissue, and that can de define you as being obese. The problem is, is that our definition of obesity is not very good, and that's what creates a difficulty in even trying to describe what obesity is, but it is accumulation of body fat and where it can cause adverse health circumstances. Right, so uh, people have heard of BMI before, body mass index, which is based on height and weight, but what are the other ways that people use to assess uh, obesity status. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's all kinds of different uh, ways of doing it. Some of the earlier methods were calipers, distribution of body fat, and trying to accumulate how much body fat you may have against lean tissue. Still pretty inaccurate because you're looking at skim folds and that measurement by measurement is not very good. BMI was a determinant of what's your mass over your height, but again, it doesn't differentiate what that weight is. Is it good lean tissue? Is it fat? It, it never, right, never so you're, you're just heavy for your height, but what does that what does that constitute? Is it, is yeah. it fat tissue or is it muscle or... Yeah. You know, okay. And the argument of, well, in the general population, it should work out. Like, I mean, against Olympic athletes as being a small population of that weight problem. And you're like, it's still very inaccurate, bottom line. And, mm -hmm. and the distribution of body fat's the real question. Where your fat is, is more dangerous and the type of fat that you have than it is just weight itself. So it's not, it's not good. It's inaccurate. And that's why BMI has been not a good clinical tool. Right. So when you say where your fat is, do you mean what part of your body or where is it in relation right. to your organs? Right. Right. Twofold, yeah. twofold. Okay. So one of them is the type of fats. So you have subcutaneous out fat and then you have visceral internal fat near and close to organs. So it's hard to differentiate where that is. But when you do find areas of your body that have certain critical illnesses, research has shown that, for instance, things around your waist, in and around your chest uh, for men and women, is actually quite detrimental for our health. Mm -hmm. Women can wear, for instance, a lot of waist and overall hip 
fat. And that's not as detrimental, for instance. So the distribution of your body fat in between the sexes is important. But looking at it saying, okay, if you have it in and around your waist and it is a visceral type fat, that's more dangerous than say in and around your waist subcutaneous. But still, this is hard to differentiate, right? So, but the bottom line really when we pull away is yeah, the distribution of your fat has a higher association with comorbidities than just having weight on. Okay, so and then for people that are like wondering about the difference between visceral and subcutaneous, I think the way you could describe it is if you can grab onto a big fold of skin around your midsection and it's thicker and that, that's, that fat is under the skin. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people have larger stomachs where their skin is almost tight and, 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 and very thin, but mm -hmm. the body fat is inside the muscle and, and next to the organs. And that's really where a lot of the challenges lie. Why would that type of fat be worse for people than the fat that's underneath the skin? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great point. So the idea of a fat under your skin is pretty much almost like a, a storage retention. It's, it's, a, it's the idea of, of a certain part of your body already having a certain amount of fat for protection and insulation. But you're right, when you actually have a lot of fat laid close to organs, it's because of the fact your body needs to get rid of of sugar and materials in your blood, it's transferred into fat and ends up being a highly accumulated near critical organs for critical function. It seems like you want a lot of energy close to critical organs, but it seems like the more that we end up putting fat in these areas, the more that they're associated for chronic disease condition. So we're still trying to understand that factor, but it, it does lead to higher levels of inflammation and in and around those organs, there's a lot of complexity, there's a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a higher association, uh, again, of just disease conditions when we have visceral fat that's subcutaneous. So that's some of the straight up. Yeah. Well, you also said something's interesting about differences between genders. Uh, mm -hmm. That has to do with hormones. How do hormones influence where we store fat? Because I know fat patterning changes over mm -hmm. time for women, for example, as they reach menopause, and then as men, as we get older. So how does that, how does it impact it? So that's a great point. And, and a lot of times that's found in not just, you know, simple, you know, sex hormones, but hormones that are related to things that we can stimulate and upregulate through like exercise and regular physical activity. And the idea is as we start to, to wane, especially in men and our testosterone levels lower, we start to see more accumulation in areas like on our chest and in and around our stomach. And those are areas where they're indignant to say, yeah, there's a hormonal imbalance, there's an issue here, there's a lack of physical activity and, and there's going to see a high penetrance there. Same true for women women will naturally wear a great deal of weight in and around um, basically the, their hips and thighs. And that is not directly hormonal for them, but when they do start to see changes in their overall physiology, estrogen levels fall off. Then they do start to see accumulations higher in the areas of their body, which again are now associated with the same conditions like men, waist circumference and an insignificant, or an sorry, significant amount of weight in and around their upper body, which can cause same associated disease conditions. Right, and you think about that, you know, like as women age and they start to lose their estrogen, they lose that fat off their glutes in their legs and it starts going more to their stomach mm -hmm. and as that happens concurrently the risk for heart disease goes up almost identical to men after women reach menopause it, it very quickly goes mm -hmm. to a very high level and I think a lot of people don't know that about health is that um, all of a sudden that fat starts to, to change and those hormones protect people well, oh most definitely even things like um, the, the need for magnesium and its association with the distribution of body fat and as women hit that menopausal stage, their need for magnesium and the idea of, of its help and support for metabolism is critical. We don't see that cations being all that important uh, in the general population, but once we see populations change, that post-menopausal stage, the hormonal profile for women especially becomes very critical for us to start looking at those things. So from a clinical standpoint, a diagnostic standpoint, we have to think, okay, where is the person in their journey? Where are they in life? And then how do we find a way to address those critical uh, issues and looking at those, uh, those hopes and supports for them? Right. So before we get into like what needs to happen in the mm -hmm. medical system to be able to proactively address obesity, mm -hmm. what are some of the 
conditions? Because obesity is now deemed a disease mm-hmm. um, according to new guidelines that are out. But what are some of the sort of other metabolic conditions that go right. hand in hand with it? Well, probably one of the more, which we would call, I guess, the, the mirrored epidemic and the idea of thinking that as uh, obesity uh, increases in a population at an epidemiological level, we also see a mirrored increase in diabetes. And diabetes is one of those conditions and diseases which is, is just rampant. And we believe that maybe, say, obesity wasn't directly caused by, you know, again, uh, carbohydrates and all kinds of other issues and certain uh, obesity or highly energetic foods. We do definitely see just, again, that strong relationship, however. So, again, we're looking at that kind of chicken and the egg at times about which one's causing which genetic predispositions or otherwise, but we know that these conditions are mirrored to one another. So that metabolic condition is, is very critical. There's other metabolic conditions as well, which aren't, are more energy regulating, and they would come from appetite and things that we see now in research like food addiction and the idea of that having an effect on how your metabolism functions because you're overeating when you don't need it for metabolic purposes. So that's one of those conditions as well. Um, but then there's also some of those other conditions which you you know you're going to see that are a little bit longer term, could be more prone genetically or otherwise, but you're still going to see those cardiovascular disease, uh, heart disease, uh, arthrosclerosis, those types of conditions happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But again, it's difficult sometimes for us to know what type of diet or what type of lifestyle may have directly caused it or maybe genetic predispositions. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's the thing. Everybody's on a journey and we need to understand where they are in that journey and trying to find a way to help them. Uh, it can't be just a blanket statement of lose weight and exercise. There has to be a more surgical approach there. So, Farrell, today we're talking about obesity, but we're also talking about the new guidelines that came out from the Canadian Medical Association and with the treatment of obesity. You've, you've read these. Yep, you know, yeah, as an obesity yeah. researcher, what are, the, what are the big things that you've gleaned out of it? Right. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great guideline. It's really fantastic. From the fact that it's going to help patients you know, that, are, that are in need of, of these issues and the fact that it now equips, it gives uh, doctors a tool, and this is what's critical, it gives doctors and physicians a tool to be able to help people when it comes to obesity. But I think that in an actual clinic, this is going to be very powerful. It's going to be a game changer when people actually go in to you know, see a person about their weight management, about their health circumstances, because they're going to now, again, physicians have a tool to rely on to help and support them. Well, I think that that's the thing. If it's deemed a disease and somebody else had diabetes or cancer or another disease of mm-hmm. some sort, the physician would automatically talk about that with them. But yeah. these guidelines allow physicians to have a conversation around a subject that was always seen as a risk factor and, and not seen as something that needs to come to the forefront. But these guidelines have sort of said, no, obesity has to be brought up. This is part yeah. of clinical care now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it very much shows that if a physician, allied health worker, no matter who we might be, in trying to look at treatment aspects, we can't just look at the phenotype. We can't just look at the person, say this person from our perspective is is more than likely obese or morbidly obese, and that suddenly our treatment should be copy and paste. It's not that. It's now saying that even no matter who you are, you have to pull away and say, okay, what are the circumstances here? Is the person potentially unhealthy, you know, mentally or otherwise, physically? Okay, from there, then how do we gleam out uh, what kind of support they probably need to be able to address the situation? Like we talked about earlier, this is a journey, you know, the idea of going from one place to another. Obesity is not a static point. It comes and goes. It wanes. We've all gained and lost weight like yo-yos. It's a, it's a, it's a situation that's not always static. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, this now allows you to say, look, we have something that says you cannot just look at obesity as a definition of BMI, which we already know is inaccurate. It says from a clinical standpoint, you know, the BMI is only going to give you that, that bit of information. But the guidelines here are going to allow you to say, how do I approach it? Where do I go from here? How do I find a way to move forward with these patients mm-hmm. and try to find the best solution for them rather than think that, 
oh, well, they're cheating on their diet. They're not keeping up with the exercise prescription. And most physicians, you know, uh, let's just be frank. I mean, they, they know a bit about exercise and, and diet, but not as much as the allied health workers which support them. So it needs to be a team effort to be able to get to that type of solution. So why be critical on those points? You know, try to address it from the standpoint which you need to. What are the issues? How can I treat you? And gather information to try to get the best treatment. We'll be right back with Dr. Lori Twells, who's a professor and researcher at Memorial University. She was a co-author on the team that developed the new Canadian Adult Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines. Welcome to the show, Dr. Twells. Thank you for having me. Well, today we're going to talk about something that's extremely relevant to Newfoundland, actually to Canada as a whole, and that's obesity. What's the state of obesity here in Newfoundland and Labrador? Uh, well, in terms of um, sort of, I guess, just general percentage of the population, um, really probably one in three adults um, would be classified as obesity just using the indicator body mass index. Mm-hmm. Um, and as most of us know, body mass index is your weight in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. And a BMI over 30 is considered or classified as somebody who is living with obesity. Mm. So one in three... Canadian, one in three adults in our province are living with obesity. Um, another one in six are probably living with extreme obesity, which would be a BMI greater than 35. Right. And what are some of the risk factors that are associated with somebody who falls into those categories? Excess body fat impairs health. Um, and I guess this is where... Um, body mass index is not always necessarily the best indicator because as we know, it really just indicates your size to a certain extent. It doesn't necessarily tell you anything about percentage body fat or even location of body fat. In general, it just tells you how big somebody is. But if in fact, uh, somebody with obesity does have a lot of excess body fat or adipose tissue, then it's really the adipose tissue that increases health risk. And what we do know from a lot of research, um, a lot of sort of review studies now is that it's the adipose tissue that increases the risks of things like cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, gout, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a number of cancers. Um, And so really it predisposes somebody to developing those conditions. And that's a bit of a change, I think, is that uh, often sometimes uh, obesity is seen as a comorbid factor of some of these conditions, but it may actually be the cause of a lot of them. Yeah, and I guess basically what we're now kind of finding through the research is that obesity itself is a disease. Um, And just quite recently, the Canadian Medical Association, along with most other organizations in the world now, health organizations, have endorsed obesity as a disease. Um, And I guess the reality there is what what is a disease? First of all, what is a chronic disease? Um, Just like diabetes or hypertension, obesity is a complex, progressive, and relapsing chronic condition. Um, which is characterized by excess body fat. So it's not something that you treat and then goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens is, and has been over time, is that people, the focus on losing weight um, has been achievable. Um, But for most people, the vast majority of people, when they're not under treatment, that weight just comes back on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not necessarily through a lack of willpower. It's not necessarily through a lack of Um, focus or discipline. It's just the biology, which actually makes it much easier for humans to lose weight, actually on restrictive diets, um, and much and very easy for weight to be put back on very quickly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really a relapsing condition that needs a different form of treatment. Okay, so that brings me to why I reached out to you. You've been involved in a pretty landmark project uh, nationally that's uh, changing the way that people are dealing with obesity in the clinical setting. Do you want to share a little bit about that project? Yep. So about three years ago, um, and I guess just to take a step back there, I've been working on obesity kind of related research since about 2002. So during my doctoral work, I looked at the sort of state of obesity in the province and its impact on the healthcare system. Um, And since then, I've continued to do a lot of work around the epidemiology of obesity, uh, the impact of obesity on children, um, some of the preventative factors related to obesity in children, as well as more recently looking at bariatric surgery as a treatment for people affected by severe obesity. So people who are really struggling with excessive adipose tissue and the fact that it's it's really impaired their health. Um, So based on a lot of that research, I was asked to take part as a steering committee member on a new clinical practice set of guidelines that would be coming out. Um, And this was three years ago, we were asked to get involved. So it's been three years in the making and really a landmark set of guidelines, like you said, that really started to turn the table on our approach to um, what we should be focusing on um, in terms of management and treatment of obesity. So, so how have those guidelines now been changed? I think obesity is more prevalent, so physicians would be dealing with it more on a, on a day-to-day basis in their clinic. How have the new guidelines shifted the approach from the previous ones? So I would say the real focus on the previous set of guidelines based on the evidence to that point would have been very much a focus on what we kind of call in the field, the eat less, move more kind of mantra. So a patient comes into a physician's office, um, they're potentially uh, struggling with with weight issues, Um, they have extra weight on and their health is impaired. Um, the, The sort of evidence or the the, I guess the recommendations 15 years ago would have been around, you know, just get, you need to do some more exercise. You need to get out and do more, or you need to stop eating, you know, very simple recommendations to people, which really were unhelpful then actually. Um, and I guess over time, what we've seen through research that's been done on, on populations is just very unhelpful in general. Um, because obesity as a, as a chronic condition is just so much more complex than the simple get out, do more, eat less. Um, What we know from 15 years of research is that diets actually work. Um, If you go on a restrictive commercial diet, um, which has actually been developed to restrict the calories that, you know, your your sort of regular set of calories that you might eat on a daily basis, you will lose weight. Um, And most of the research shows that in terms of, in fact, when you compare diets, one's not better than the other. Um, they all come out pretty much the same. People will lose weight. Um, but the reality is the, the relationship is very much like a U or a B. You lose weight, you come off the diet, you gain the weight back. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you make substantial changes to your lifestyle going forward, and even with those changes, it's difficult. Because we also know from studies like, for example, using bariatric surgery as an example, um, where people will lose a significant amount of weight. Um, even with changes in lifestyle, sometimes that weight creeps back on because your whole metabolic profile has changed as well. And once you've been restricting calories for a long time, your metabolism's changed. Um, So it's actually much easier to gain weight, but actually you lose less energy. You use up less energy just in general, even compared to someone who's normal weight. 
So the focus has shifted very much from that simple, you know, eat, eat less, kind of move more to a um, focus really on a, a relapsing chronic disease. So a confirmation that we're dealing with a disease that's not simply going to be treated with sort of just simple advice that requires a much more complex approach to treatment and really also requires looking at root causes. So what's happening in somebody's life that can help a physician or a healthcare professional um, or, and the patient themselves start to think about what, what is the issue here with the excess weight that I'm carrying? Mm-hmm. Um, have I been put, is, is the weight come on because I was, was always big? Um, is it related to stress? Is it related to trauma? Um, are there mental health issues going on? Uh, is it emotional eating? And until patients are sometimes even asked these questions, they themselves don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. And that's, uh, that's one of the things. People can be immobilized and unable to get that physical activity that helps. They may have stress and they, they find comfort in foods. And we're, uh, one of the things I've seen is that behavior makes a big difference. As an epidemiologist, I think people are becoming more aware of what an epidemiologist is these days, given the pandemic. Um, what are some of the other uh, factors that can play a part in people being more susceptible to obesity? Well, I mean, if you look at the factors in general, so I mean, you're talking about genetics. So genetics will absolutely play a role here. Um, you are looking at the social determinants of health, right, in terms of access to healthy living, uh, healthy foods, a non-stress-free environment, the ability to have disposable free time to even get out and get that exercise, mm-hmm. uh, which is helpful for maintaining weight loss, certainly. Um, you know, you've got other comorbid conditions, other medications that in fact uh, predispose people to gaining weight. So certainly mental health issues often come with the adverse consequences of medications that in fact help a patient put weight on. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all things that need to be considered. So the whole sort of idea of looking at root causes is something that I think is really coming out in the, in the guidelines. And, and just looking at root causes is one thing, but it's actually asking patients themselves, you know, would you like to discuss your weight? Yes. Um, is this something that is concerning you? Um, you know, we're going through a sort of set of like the five A's where you're actually asking, you know, is this something that you'd like to discuss? Um, because really it's about shared sort of decision-making between the healthcare professional and the patient. Is this a problem? Is it impairing your health? If it's impairing your health, then obesity becomes obesity because Mm -hmm. if it's, if it's your size and it's not impairing your health, it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. We might want to keep a check on it um, in terms of weight gain, but you know, if there's no health impairment, then there's no disease. Right, and that's the metabolically um, so, healthy obese. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right, and that they and a lot and those people exist. You can't just see somebody come through the door who is is large, um, who might be carrying excess body fat, and you know, we all have as we, and as research has shown most people have an internalized bias. Um, and it's something that, you know, the first time I was sort of even exposed to this, um, I thought, well, I've been doing research in this area for 20 years. Um, I'm very compassionate and empathetic towards people. I've, I've been working with patients and I know, you know, some of the challenges and things, but we all have an internalized bias. And when we do an assessment, a validated assessment, most often it shows that we all do, which is we, we have a unconscious bias that says you're somebody who we think, you know, we already draw a judgment on what they're not doing or what they're doing. Mm. 
um, very similar to gender biases, ethnicity biases, ageism, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's not something that we, you know, we should be afraid of sort of um, being exposed to. We should be, it, we should acknowledge it mm -hmm. and then we can move forward. I, I found it actually to be incredibly helpful to know that even somebody who's been working in obesity research for 20 years can have an internalized bias, not explicitly, I'd never express it, but it's something you then have to say to yourself, okay, I need to move beyond that. Right. Um, you know nothing about the person standing in front of you um, and what, what they've come from. Canadians living with obesity face widespread weight bias and weight-based discrimination from strangers, educators, employers, health professionals, media, and even friends and family. Weight bias is a term that refers to negative attitudes and views about obesity and about people with obesity. Experiencing weight bias can have negative consequences for individuals, including feelings of shame and blame, anxiety, depression, poor self-esteem, and body dissatisfaction that can lead to unhealthy weight control practices. Weight stigma, on the other hand, refers to the social stereotypes and misconceptions about obesity. These social stereotypes and misconceptions can include beliefs that people with obesity are lazy or they lack self-discipline, self-control, or even worse. Well, if you've ever been the victim of weight discrimination, you're not alone. I'd encourage you to visit Obesity Canada and read their information on weight stigma and what it is and how it can affect you and the steps you can take to eliminate the issue. Remember, obesity is a medical condition that can be caused by multiple factors. However, people often think that individuals living with obesity are personally responsible for the weight because they just eat too much and they don't exercise enough. And this belief is fundamental driver of these weight biases, stigma, and discrimination. Everyone should be aware of obesity, stigmatization, and discrimination. So here's a few examples of how we may see it in our community. It could be verbal or emotional discrimination when individuals are teased, insulted, made fun of, or rejected by their friends, family, and peers. For example, weight bullying in schools or in employment settings. It could be physical discrimination when individuals are assaulted or harassed because of their weight. Or it could be barriers in day-to-day -day life, for example, undersized chairs in public locations or lack of appropriate sized medical equipment such as blood pressure cuffs or patient gowns. There are some serious problems that can be caused by this. Weight discrimination can affect individuals' access to education, employment, medical care, causing health and social inequities. Remember, stigma and weight discrimination is an added burden to an individual's health and can be a barrier to weight management. So please be aware of these terms and make sure you're sensitive to those that are struggling with obesity. People facing medical challenges need support and community, not isolation and stigmatization. So, so when people are able to determine what some of these root causes may be that have led to this condition, are the treatments that we're using with patients going to shift as well? Yeah, so basically um, right now in Canada for the most part and based on the guidelines and the evidence, um, there's sort of four kind of pillars, I guess, of treatment. Um, so you're talking about what a new term really that's been developed using these guidelines, which is medical nutrition therapy. So moving away from the word diet, right? Mm -hmm. As a go on a diet, lose weight, you know, we won't worry about what happens next. Um, so medical nutrition therapy is going to be a much more comprehensive approach to helping patients change probably some of their eating patterns, some of the food intake, 
um, but as part of a kind of larger program of, of management and treatment. Mm -hmm. So you've got medical nutrition therapy. Um, you've also got physical activity, no doubt. And physical activity comes with all the benefits that we all know anyway. Mm -hmm. But certainly when you're losing weight, um, developing a good physical activity routine will help you maintain weight loss. And that's been shown. So, I mean, that's the key with physical activity is we don't need to recommend it for weight loss. We recommend it for everything, for everybody. Um, but in terms of weight loss, it's actually helpful for maintaining weight loss as well. Um, the two other sort of pillars of treatment, which then get sort of added on here, are pharmacotherapy um, in terms of some of the anti-obesity medications that are now available, um, approved by Health Canada, but not necessarily covered by any provincial drug plan which is an issue. Um, and there's certainly some lobbying and advocacy going on in terms of getting these medications covered for either through insurance or through provincial drug plans, um, as well as bariatric surgery. And bariatric surgery, again, is something that people sometimes say, ooh, you know, what's this all about? Um, do we need surgery um, for people who are living with obesity? And the, and the short answer is absolutely 100% yes. If you are somebody who has found yourself through a variety of different circumstances to now be carrying a lot of excess adipose tissue that's impairing your physical health, your mental health, your emotional health, your spiritual health, whether it's mobility, whether it's self-care, whether it's depression and anxiety, whether it's your quality of life. Um, this is the most effective and most cost-effective treatment available. Um, and it helps people to actually lose a significant amount of weight um, based on surgery. And it isn't just about stomach restriction. So a lot of people will say, well, of course, if you, you know, if, if you, if you have surgery and you reduce the size of my stomach, I won't eat as much. Mm -hmm. Not entirely true. Um, the impact of bariatric surgery comes is, is, is much bigger than that. So there's the restriction, but then there's also the metabolic impact, mm -hmm. um, which actually reduces, um, type two diabetes, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, inflammation in the body. These things all happen as a result of weight loss as well as a change in your metabolic profile. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's also some other things that happen with our energy regulation when it comes to the bariatric surgery. So it allows people to have uh, reinforced new nutritional therapy. Um, more effectively without having to deal with all those um, old habits and hunger, hunger hormones kicking through their body as much, right? So you mentioned the, the pillars, um, but you also mentioned that the psychology of the individual and mental health may have uh, an impact on obesity status. How does that play in? Yeah. Yeah. So actually there's probably more like five pillars actually. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at things like medical nutrition therapy and physical activity, um, they kind of go hand in hand in general in terms of sort of healthy lifestyle approaches. Um, and then really after that, we're talking about a psychological approach in terms of behavioral change um, as, a, as a treatment or management therapy. Um, and then pharmacotherapy or drugs anti-obesity medications of which there are two approved in Canada, but none covered under insurance um, organizations, and then bariatric surgery. So that's really the sort of treatment regime that's available. And there's many things in that sort of treatment regime in terms of your toolkit. And then it's really coming to, you know, share decision making with the patient around what avenue or what approach they want to take. Mm. Um, you know, if you think about, and Mike, you would know this just strictly from say, physical activity. Mm. Um, trying to change people's behavior and how they live uh, is very challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and we know through some of the behavioral kind of research that's being done 
there's just so many factors that influence things, you know, so you, you can be going fine for months and then you're totally derailed yep. um, by something, you know, maybe you lose your job, maybe there's a partner issue. Um, and, and depending on what you go back to, you know, whether, and, and so most of us, or a lot of people do go back to eating for emotional reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these, these kind of relationships have to be kind of broken or at least reduced. I think sometimes uh, we don't know why we do things. So that sort of education piece around helping, you know, to sort of people understand, okay, they, you know, we all use, have different coping mechanisms, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they all different for different people. Um, but if you've developed them around food, then it's good to know that, start to be aware of it, like you say, and sometimes, you know, more knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. So you walking away saying, yeah, I didn't realize that's what I do all the time. I'm stressed. Yeah. Or, or this is what we always did at home when things were not going well. You know, it, the unfortunate thing is, is that some of those things are not necessarily bad. No. Um, you know, the idea that you sat around the table with a cup of tea and something to eat and said, okay, what are we all going to do here? Culturally, these are not bad things. I just think in today's environment um, where, you know, we, there's kind of a surplus of everything, it's, it's hard to get away from that. We'll be right back with Dr. Lori Twells. So one thing I wanted to mention or ask you about today was was about children because childhood obesity is is going up dramatically. What are some of the things parents should know about obesity in their kids? In terms of the epidemiology, so the the, the particular guidelines are based on adults um, or, or directed towards adults. In terms of obesity in children, um, in Newfoundland, twenty five percent of children going to school were either overweight or obese. Now, I mean the the, the Stats around children are a little bit variable, first of all, um, in terms of where the data comes from and how often it's collected. The issue with childhood obesity is, you know, related to, again, we're back to the same root causes, whether it's genetic, environmental, or social determinants, right? So it's, it's really no different in terms of the causes. The focus for children is still very much on health versus weight, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, when you look at something like weight as a focus, weight is an outcome. It's not a behavior, you know, so you, you have to move away from that. So it's really more on the health aspect. So as a result of this project, what do you expect to be the next steps, both for, you know, the national guidelines, but also for yourself and your research? Yep. So I think in terms of the guidelines themselves, um, there's a huge amount of focus and work in there, and it has been, it's really started since they were launched in April and May this year around the implementation and advocacy. So Obesity Canada has also been publishing an obesity report card for the last two years, uh, which has really been highlighting what's going on in Canada. Um, So in terms of treatment, in terms of management, access to uh, medications, access to surgery, um, prevention, et cetera. Um, for the most part, right across the country, most provinces are, you know, D's and F's kind of thing, um, which was surprising to me when I was involved with the report card, because I also, I mean, I knew very much what was going on provincially here. Um, and our bariatric surgery program only opened in 2011. Um, and I know what's available in terms of treatments and the lack of, um, coverage for drugs, et cetera. And I guess you always have a view that other provinces might be doing it better. Um, But in fact, when you look at the report card right across the country and the territories, we're all kind of failing on most parts of that. Um, Some of it comes from the fact that obesity hasn't been endorsed as a disease. So we're still treating it as a risk factor. 
Um, if you look at a lot of provincial strategic plans, they're still naming it as a risk factor. Um, so the, the focus is not there. You know, the right. focus is not on the disease itself. So I think the clinical practice guidelines are really bringing that to the forefront, um, saying, you know, we've got to stop talking about it as a risk factor. This is, obesity itself is a disease, and this is why. This is the science behind it. And there are chapters there to show, give the evidence for that. Um, another big thing that came out of the guidelines, which I'd like to touch on briefly as well, is just the, the inherent stigma and bias that exists um, within the health system. And I guess there's enough research now to really show that just how detrimental that is to a patient's health as well as mortality. So there's research that really shows that, that, that this sort of bias and stigma we have is, is very unhelpful. Uh, patients do not um, respond well to the shame of, of, you know, sort of being called out um, in, terms of, in terms of their weight. Um, it stops treatments from occurring. Um, it stops patients to going to see their physicians because they're, you know, worried because they haven't lost the weight. They said they'd try and lose. Mm. Um, they're often overlooked in terms of the conditions they have. So weight becomes the sort of overarching thing versus maybe the hypertension or the prediabetes. Um, so there's all sorts of issues there. So there is a real focus on the healthcare system actually acknowledging that that exists and sort of moving forward with that. So I think that that's a big change um, and we'll yet to see how that translates into to practice. Mm -hmm. These guidelines themselves are really directed at primary healthcare physicians um, in general, um, because really that's where the majority of uh, physician visits take place, where most people will, will see their physician with far fewer seeing a specialist. Um, so they're really directed at those primary care physicians. So these guidelines are actually being developed into teaching modules, webinars. They're already, a lot of these are already available and they're still under development. Um, so all this will be rolled out over the next few months. That's exciting. Um, yeah. Which is really exciting. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's fantastic. And the physicians I've shared this with have just said, this has been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. um, and the 19 chapters behind it are, are all there to be, to be read, including a chapter on indigenous healthcare related to obesity. So again, you know, depending on what area that you need to look at in terms of evidence, there's, there, it's all there. And, and it's all very much up-to-date evidence-based reviews based on randomized control trials and meta-analyses. Excellent. Excellent. And so what about yourself? Are you going to be doing more research, doing some work locally with our populations here? Yep. So right now, uh, actually, we just completed a study um, so we actually, I had a bariatric surgery study that started back in 2011, um, and we were actually following patients post-surgery, looking at health outcomes, physical health outcomes, et cetera. Um, and that study finished in 2016, uh, where we saw a significant number, majority of our patients who'd had surgery uh, do extremely well, increases in quality of life, which, which you would never see with any other treatment. And actually, we've just completed a study just completed a study with a medical student where we've reconnected with most of those majority of those patients to assess where they are now. So this is now nine, seven to 10 years out in terms of what's happened post-bariatric surgery to look at the long-term outcomes of surgery. So I'm really excited. We've literally just got that data. And so we'll be analyzing that data now over the next month or so. And my general feel is, is the majority of, of patients have, are still doing extremely well. It's not to say there's not some weight regain post-surgery that would be expected, but for the most part, they are still far better off than they would have been having not had surgery. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. I mean, you think about uh, the thing about diets is sometimes it's the best way to gain the weight back because they're not successful. And we we know people struggle with exercise as well. So it's definitely an alternative. And it's nice to know probably for the listeners to know that there is a program here that they could potentially look into if, if their physician deemed it was something that was warranted, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, their their primary care physician is the first point to call for that in terms of their assessment and referral to the program. And often, like you say, sometimes the patients need to advocate for themselves, which is, Mm. I know this program exists, you know, is it something that I should consider? And that's actually the last thing I would ask you would be, what, what would you tell people that are listening that may be struggling with obesity about how can they navigate the system? What should they be looking at for themselves to identify where the, where the challenges are? Uh, my suggestion would be, especially based on these new clinical practice guidelines, is they really need to speak to the healthcare professional. And usually that is a, a general practitioner. I mean, it could be a dietitian, it could be another healthcare professional as well. And you know what? If the healthcare professional is not even aware of these guidelines, they can bring these guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, the Obesity Canada website is set up for professionals and the public. So, you know, this stuff takes a bit of time to filter down, you know, not everybody is on top of this all the time, but in terms of what's out there, in terms of the recommendations, it certainly would be the talking point that a patient could have with their healthcare professional. And in the way that we're asking healthcare professionals to ask the patient, you know, can I speak to you about your weight? Would you like to speak about it? A patient can do the same thing with the physician. I've seen this come out. It's been all over the news the last few months, and it really has been sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. globally all over the news. Is this something, you know, we can talk about? Because really they are the best ones to help a patient guide them towards kind of, you know, improving their health based on adipose, sort of excess adipose tissue. And really trying to stay away from, you know, just the, the, the fad diets, the, the, the media attention that's given to everything that really doesn't work. Mm-hmm. The short term kind of impact, which is really very short lived. And if you're looking for sort of, you know, permanent or at least consistent change over time, you need help and support, just like any chronic disease. You need help and support over time to manage it. Well, I was just going to say, if somebody has a a medical condition, they would go to their physician. And Mm -hmm. we now know that obesity is a medical condition where people need to get medical care. And that may involve other allied health fields, but uh, probably best for them to have that chat. So I really appreciate you, you walking me through that today. Perfect. Thank you. I wanted to thank Dr. Cal and Dr. Twells for joining us today. Obesity is something that touches many of us, and I hope today's episode helped you understand the role you should play in your own health advocacy when speaking with your doctor about obesity and its potential impacts on your long-term health. Well, thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Health and Wellness Show on your VOCM.